of Jesus Christ. And here's what we know um, so far, kind of <clears throat> the foundation that has been laid after the death of Jesus, Rome and the surrounding territories became increasingly hostile to anyone who was a follower of Jesus Christ. According to tradition, every one of the remaining 11 disciples except for one was killed for their faith, brutally murdered for their faith. That one that wasn't John the Apostle, he wasn't killed for his faith, but he was persecuted for and he suffered for his faith. On one occasion, when John was in his 90s, he would not deny Christ. So the Roman emperor Domitian sentenced John to a rocky, inhospitable prison island called Patmos. So when you think of Patmos, think Alcatraz. That's the picture I want in your mind, Alcatraz, see, a prison island. And during this time, John owned this island. Jesus spoke to John. Jesus comforted John with one long, amazing vision. The book of Revelation is known for its vivid description of God's apocalyptic judgment, but it begins with seven letters from Jesus addressed to seven first century churches in Asia Minor. So what we're going to do is we are going to walk through each and every church of the seven churches. And then when we get through to Revelation 4, we're going to start kind of flying through um, this book so that we keep our focus upon Christ and don't get bogged down in the details. But I do want to take time for us to just um, sit under each letter and to hear it and understand the beauty of it and how it even applies to us. I mean, think about this. These letters characterize those seven first century churches as loveless or forgetful, as persecuted, compromising, corrupt, spiritually dead, faithful, and lukewarm. Each message, as I said, specifically given to each first century church, yet also applies applicable, relevant for all churches and especially for us. We need to hear these words. We need to take in these words of Jesus. We need to respond to them. And this morning we come to the church at Smyrna. Let me just give you a little information. Smyrna was um, the city that rivaled Ephesus for its beauty. It was known as the glory of Asia or the first of Asia. It was famous for its architecture. It boasted a stadium, a library, the largest amphitheater in all of Asia. There was also impressive temples to Apollos and Aphrodite, just to name a few. Smyrna also competed with and defeated Sardis um, for the honor of erecting a temple in honor of the Roman emperor. So we're going to more about that in just a minute. The church at Smyrna was probably started during the third missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. And Smyrna was one of only two of the seven churches that did not receive a warning or a condemnation from Jesus Christ. And the reason they did not receive a condemnation is because they were a church that suffered persecution. And here's the deal. And we're going to hear this more in just a minute. Persecution has a way of purifying the church of Jesus Christ as a way of purifying the church of Jesus Christ. There was a, a famous statement, well-known, and has become well-known in church history. And the statement is this, the blood of the saints is the seed of the church. The blood of the saints is the seed of the church. This statement is attributed to church father Tertullian in A.D. 197 when he gave a defense of Christianity in front of the Roman emperor. But the actual quote of Tertullian is this, the oftener we are mowed down by you, the more in number we grow, 
The blood of Christians is seed. It's seed. And here's what we know. Suffering, persecution, martyrdom has indeed been the calling of the church of the Lord Jesus among the nations throughout the entire or her entire history. It is beneficial for us. I encourage you to find time to read about the persecution of brothers and sisters um, in all ages of the church. It is beneficial It's beneficial for a few different reasons. Number one, to understand the heartbeat of the church for Christ, even in the midst of persecution. It's beneficial because it teaches us to pray for the persecuted church today, and it prepares us for what could be coming. So they're beneficial in different ways. If you want to, there's so many different outlets that you can choose to read about the persecuted brothers and sisters. I I, I know Brother David back there would would encourage you to start with this book called... um, and I just lost it. Uh, Insanity of Faith. There we go. Thank you. Thank you, Minnie. The Insanity of Faith by Nick, Nick Ripkin. Um, it's an amazing place to start, and it will um, forever change the way you see the persecuted church. So back to Smyrna. In, in the city of Smyrna, the church was facing a level of persecution that you and I have never ever experienced but even in the the face of pain suffering and death they were being called on by their savior to endure they're being called on by jesus to endure so in this message from christ um, he commends this church for their strength in the midst of their endurance he encourages them of eternal reward that's coming because of their endurance and this is a call that we need today in order so that we can understand persecution in the world that we live in and so that we can understand how God is present for us and he is present with us in the midst of any persecution that might come. So let's dive in this morning and let's hear the words of Jesus for us today, for the first century church, but also for us. If you are able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we honor God's word. We're going to read Revelation 2, 8 through 11. And it says this, And of course, let me remind you, in my Bible, these are words written in red. I pray they are in yours as a reminder that these words are straight from the mouth of Jesus. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you. And Lord, we thank you that you are a God who speaks. Lord, you are not silent. And Jesus, we thank you that you have spoken to your church, the church that you have built through your sacrifice upon the cross. And Lord, you are guarding, protecting, walking in the midst of your church, and you are speaking to your church. Help us, O oh God, to, to hear your voice today. Help us to respond rightly to it. I pray for anyone in this room, Lord, or who's listening at home that doesn't know you, that today would be the day of salvation. And that you would help us all, God, to endure. To endure. Lord, have your way. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. So as I said from the beginning, Smyrna was 
Only one of two churches, them in Philadelphia, that did not receive correction from Jesus, but instead received encouragement from Jesus. In Smyrna, worshiping Caesar as Lord was a way of ensuring favor from Rome. So the Romans had combined religion and state to the point that Caesar had to be worshipped as God. All citizens in Smyrna had to declare this phrase, Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. Lord, it was your patriotic duty to do so, and refusing to worship Caesar was unpatriotic and even treacherous. In fact, think of it like this. Worshiping the emperor, saying those words, Caesar is Lord, was required in order for you to vote, in order for you to own property, and in order for you to trade in the market. So in order for you to do all those things, if you wanted to vote, Caesar is Lord. If you wanted to own a house, Caesar is Lord. If you wanted to trade in the market, Caesar is Lord. But this put Christians in a great conflict because a true Christian will never utter the words, Caesar is Lord, because to the true child of God, Jesus is the only Lord. He is the one and the only, and he will share his place with no one or nothing. Therefore, because of this, because they became traitors to the state, Christians would have to experience prison, exclusion, isolation, and even death. Smyrna was also home of a huge Jewish synagogue, and the Jews in this synagogue actually partook in persecuting believers. Yet, as I said earlier, there was a blessing involved in this persecution because it led to the purity of the church. One commentator put it this way, and these words are powerful, yet they are hard. He says this, One of the great paradoxes in Christian history is that the church is most pure in times of cultural hostility. When things are easy and good, that is when the church most often goes astray. When Christianity seems identical with the culture, and even when the church seems to be enjoying its greatest earthly success, then it is weakest. Conversely, when the church encounters hardship, persecution, and suffering, then it is closest to its crucified Lord. Then there are fewer hypocrites and nominal believers among its members, and then the faith of Christians burns most intensely. These, listen, these aren't easy words to hear. I know that. I know the, um, the least favorite message for Christians to hear besides tithing is persecution. I, I get this picture, but here's what I also understand. Men like Richard Wormbrand, who in Romania spent over 13, I think close to 20 years being persecuted in prison for his faith, said this, the greatest enemy of the church of Jesus Christ is freedom. Freedom. He says this because freedom makes Christians serve freedom instead of serving Jesus. And we see that all across America. We see it all across America. What, what do we worship? What do we serve? Freedom, um, success, anything other than pain or difficulty. And yet we are introduced to a church who are commended by Christ because they are suffering for him. And let me remind you that the word Smyrna um, is the Greek word for, Greek word that literally means myrrh. Now if you know myrrh um, was the ointment used to create a beautiful fragrant. In Matthew 2, the wise men brought Jesus Smyrna, or myrrh. In Mark 15, Christ was offered wine mixed with Smyrna, or myrrh. Apparently it had some kind of sedative property in it. In John 19, when Jesus was buried, his body was covered with Smyrna. 
So myrrh became or becomes a picture of suffering of God's saints. Myrrh was also used by the Jew um, to place on dead bodies because Jews didn't embalm bodies. Instead, they only worried about covering up the smell. So in covering up the smell, they would use this mighty, um, amazing fragrance. So here, the church of Jesus Christ is called myrrh. The church that, in a sense, needs to be anointed with myrrh because they are facing death. God permitted, and we're going to talk about this in just a second, God permitted Satan to crush the lives of his people in the town of Myrrh in order to send forth the fragrance of God's glory heavenward. And it's something that we don't understand, but here's the deal. There was suffering in Smyrna, there was death in Smyrna, yet they were coming to Jesus for comfort and for refuge, and they found it in him. They were coming to him for it, and they found it in him. So we're going to unpack today three truths. One concerning Christ, two concerning the church. And this is not going to be an easy message today, brothers and sisters, but I pray that God would speak and that God would use this to elicit something in us so that we would hear this, be faithful to the end. Because Jesus said the true child of God is faithful to the end. So the, the picture is this. You're faithful, faithful to the end, Christian. Not faithful to the end, according to Jesus, Yanked. And, and so understand that. And if you don't, don't like that, take it up with Jesus. So uh, truth number one, Christ is characterized by his sovereignty. The first picture. So each of the seven letters to the seven churches begins with or alludes to a description of Jesus taken from Revelation 1, 12 through 18. To the church at Smyrna, Jesus says, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and last. We'll stop there. Jesus says, the first and the last. The city of Smyrna claimed to be the first in all of Asia. So the city of Smyrna, we're first in all of Asia, yet Jesus says, I'm the first and the last. Jesus was asserting two ideas of himself with the phrase first and last. He was asserting that, number one, he was divine, and number two, he's eternal. He's saying, I am God and I am eternal. This, this, fra this phrase is a clear claim that Jesus is God. Understand, there were many Many religious teachers in the ancient world who claimed to be sent by God or who claimed to have a spark of divinity um, within themselves. And Jesus very boldly made this same claim that he was from God and he had divinity within him. But unlike all others, he actually backed it up. He showed that he was from God and that um, he was God among us. It was very clear. So Jesus Think about this. He was present at the beginning of creation, and according to the book of Revelation, he'll be there at the end. He was there at the beginning. He will be there at the end. Why? Because he is God. Jesus also identifies with the nature of God and that he is eternal. That's a part of the very fabric of God. Jesus has existed from eternity past, and he will exist into eternity future. There's no time period that exists outside of Christ. And don't miss this. The declaration of Jesus as divine and eternal was a direct shot against the emperor being able to claim this for himself. It was critical for those in Smyrna to know that they were serving the right king and they were serving the right cause. And Jesus was coming on the scene and Jesus was saying, you're serving the right one. You're serving me. You're serving me for the right reasons. Don't give up. Don't stop 
doing it. Keep your allegiance to me. Here's the deal. Jesus asserted the right to have the whole heart of his church. And this is what he was saying. Jesus was saying, I don't want half of your heart. I don't want three quarters of your heart. I want all of you for you are mine. And Jesus can he can absolutely insist on that place as king because he is the first and the last and he is the one who died and came back to life. That's what he says here in verse 8. The one who died and came back to life. And understand what's happening here. Smyrna had, as a city, had died on several occasions through invasions and earthquakes. And each time they had risen again through the people building the city again, more beautiful than the last time. Throughout history, Smyrna became known as a city that had died and came back to life. And to that city who thought they were first, and who said to everybody, we're the city that died and came back to life, Jesus comes to the Christians in that city and says, I'm the first, I'm the last, I died, and I am alive forevermore. Jesus is saying to this city, listen, Smyrna is not the first and the last. I am, for ultimately death cannot hold that which is eternal. Hear me out. When you kill a man and he gets up three days later and he walks out of the grave triumphant and he ascends to the right hand of the Father, it should be very clear in all of our eyes that that man can't be stopped. You can't stop that Man, he is sovereign over all, including his church. So Christ is characterized by his sovereignty. This is who he is, first and the last. He was dead. He's alive forevermore. The question is, as I look upon your sleepy faces, is he alive in you? Is he alive in you today because you look like he's dead in you? How can someone who died and is alive forevermore live in you and you look like this? Brothers and sisters, you better wake up or Jesus might just wake you up. Listen, we need to get excited about the fact that we serve one who was dead and is alive forevermore. Never to die again. He is a sovereign one. Which leads us to the second picture, which is of the church. The church is commended for its suffering. So Christ is characterized by his sovereignty. The church is commended for its suffering. Look at verse 9. I know a life-altering thought. And I thought about something hit me this morning. Anytime me and Misty use that word of our eight-year-old little angel baby, when we say, we know Malachi, what we're normally saying is, we know you ate the cookie, just just confess to it. The cookie's all over your face. We, We know you ate it. We know Malachi, just say you did it. Just say you did it, just confess. And of course, most of the time, it wasn't me. It was It was Madison. Madison did it. And that's, you know, the picture is Jesus coming to the church in their guilt um, with cookie all over our face. Jesus going, I know. And oftentimes we're so silly and stupid and we go, it wasn't me. It was Brother Curtis. And we want to blame everybody else. But to this church, Jesus says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. The affliction that they suffered was due to the fact they live in a pluralistic um, age. Worship anything and everything, but especially worship Caesar as Lord. And they were persecuted because they refused, because to them Jesus is Lord and he is the only Lord. Charles Swindoll puts it this way, and these words are powerful. And hear this. Imagine yourself sitting among the gathering of God's people in Smyrna on a cold morning before sunrise. A small lamp-lit room houses the remnant of beaten and beleaguered church members. 
A once lively crowd of Christians now displays obvious gaps where men and women once sat. Some have fallen away from the faith under persecution. Others are simply gone, arrested, exiled, or executed. You are all risking your lives just to meet this morning, to pray, to sing hymns to God, to read from Holy Scripture. You sit among outcasts desperate for a word of encouragement from the messenger sitting in your midst. In the dim light, the pastor unrolls a scroll and begins to read with a calm, quiet confidence. Whispering and shuffling in the room ceases when you hear from whom the message comes. The risen Lord himself, the entire group seems to hold its breath when Christ begins his commendation. I know your tribulation. I know your poverty, but you are rich. Brothers and sisters, don't miss that. I think of the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians where Paul says, Christ, who was rich, became poor so that we who are poor might become rich in him. Christ who is rich, became poor, so that we who are poor might be rich in him. And then verse 9, Jesus continues and says, And the, I know the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are the, are the synagogue of Satan. So Jesus now talks about Jews who had rejected him and who were now um, persecuting the true Jew, the true child of God, the true servant of Christ. And Jesus even says of them, He says, they don't attend the synagogue of Satan. He says, they are the synagogue of Satan. Meaning, they are being used by Satan to persecute the church. The Antichrist spirit is alive and well in them, is what Jesus is saying. Then Jesus says in verse 10, do not fear. Let me pause and hear this. Every child of God in this room, hear this. Fear will cause you to magnify your worries and minimize your God. Or faith will cause you to magnify your God and minimize your worries. Where do you live? Do you live by faith or do you live in constant state of fear? Magnifying the problems, magnifying all the fears that are going on in your life. But Jesus says to this church, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. Jesus says to them, be faithful unto death. How odd of an experience for Jesus to guarantee suffering to his children while saying the whole time, don't fear. Suffering is coming. Satan's coming. Death is coming. Do not be afraid. Jesus is saying Satan is working overtime to ensure the suffering. But Jesus is also saying, but I'm using it to purify my church. Think of Genesis 50 and verse 20. In Genesis 50, 20, Joseph looks at his brothers and says this, What you meant for evil, God meant for good. Meaning Satan was doing all that he was doing for bad, yet God was testing them for good. God was doing it for good. And then Jesus said this testing would last 10 days. Now that has led all kind of people to run all kind of different ways. Like like I told you from the beginning, not everything we read in the book of Revelation is to be seen as literal. Now some have said 10 days means 10 literal days. Others say 10 days means 10 different Roman emperors. 
Um, what, what I believe is this. Ten actually means a is symbolic for a definite but a limited period of time. So Jesus is saying you're going to suffer for ten days. You're going to suffer for a definite period of time but for a limited period of time. Here's what Jesus is saying. I will allow your suffering temporarily, but I will control your suffering. Don't miss that, child of God. Don't miss that. God will allow, at times, Satan to touch us. He will allow difficulty and pain and suffering and even death to touch us. Now, you might be sitting here, you might be saying, I reject that in Jesus' name. Well, you reject that in the name of someone who went to the cross. So give it a break. I, I can't stand people who try, to, who try to say, in Jesus' name, he keep me from all suffering when we are following a Savior who went to the cross. Does that make any sense that Jesus would guarantee you safety and protection from all pain and difficulty when he didn't even do it for his own son? The point is this. Jesus will allow suffering to enter into your life and my life, but praise God, he will, he will control every last bit of it. Nothing will happen outside of us in the very hand of our God and everything that he allows to happen is for a purpose. It is for a purpose. Let me just say this. We live in a day where Christians are accused of so many different things. And we will continue to be accused. We are anti-Semitic because we believe that faith in Jesus as a Messiah is alone leads to salvation. We are anti-choice because we oppose the barbaric act of abortion. We are anti-gay because we won't confirm homosexual marriage. We're said to be anti-woman because we believe in male-only eldership of the body of Christ. We're said to be anti-intellectual because we don't embrace biological evolution. We are accused of being unloving, narrow-minded, intolerant bigots because we believe in the reality of something called the second death or the lake of fire, and we believe that the only way you can ever escape that is through faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Brothers and sisters, we are accused of so many different things, yet our response to such anti-Christian rhetoric is to love our accusers, to pray for them, and to tell them even more fervently and humbly about Jesus Christ to tell them even more about the gospel, to tell them even more about the one who died for them, even if we suffer for it. Even if we suffer for it. So the church is commended for its suffering, which leads to the last truth, number three, the church is called to eternal security. The church is called to eternal security. And again, what I'm not saying is that we sit back and go, well, I'm saved forever, I'm good, and we do nothing. No, because we are saved forever, we we finish and make it to the end. That's what I'm saying. Because we're saved forever, because our eternal security is in Christ, we will follow him to the very end. Look at the end of verse 10. Jesus says, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Jesus looks at his followers and he says this, you might have a spear shoved through your very heart, but if you do, you will have a crown placed on your head by me. Jesus is saying, listen, they might put a spear through your heart, but I will put a crown on your head. 
Don't miss the beauty of what Christ is saying. The word crown there literally means victor's crown. It reminds us of our memory verse from this week, James 1, 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. To those who stand the test, who remain steadfast, will receive the crown of life. There are a there are number of, of crowns mentioned in the Bible that believers that we can partake in in heaven. And it's instructive for us to note their occurrences. Let me just give you five. First of all, the crown of life that we read about here in Revelation 2.10 will be given for those who endure trials. Who endure to the end. Those who make it to the end. The crown of life. Then we have the crown of righteousness. In 2 Timothy 4.8, the crown of righteousness will be given to those who long for the appearance of Jesus. Those who pray the words and mean it. Come, Lord Jesus. Those who long for His return. Then we have the crown of glory, 1 Peter 5, 4, also called the shepherd's crown. It's a crown given for shepherding the flock of God faithfully. So the shepherd's crown, the crown of glory. Then we have the crown of rejoicing, which is 1 Thessalonians 2, 19, a crown that will be given for evangelism and discipleship. Yet most believers believe that this crown of rejoicing will not be a physical crown given to the believers, but will be other brothers and sisters in heaven because of you. Imagine that. The crown of rejoicing other people in heaven because of you gives us every reason to rejoice. The crown of rejoicing. And then the imperishable crown. 1 Corinthians 9.24 The imperishable crown given to those who lead disciplined lives. Those who discipline themselves and make it to the very end. And yes, as believers, every Christian should pursue these rewards. But understand this. There is not a crown mentioned that will compare with the splendor and beauty of seeing Jesus Christ face to face. No crown will compare with that. Which leads Jesus to end this letter this way. In verse 11, Jesus says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Don't miss what Jesus is saying to the one who conquers, to the one who overcomes, to the one who makes it to the end, will not be hurt by the second death. And let me just speak this morning just to me. And if it applies to you, then I ask you to, to put it on and walk with me through this. There is nothing of which I am more deserving of than the second death or the lake of fire. There is nothing more fitting, there is nothing more just, there is nothing more righteous than for me to suffer forever in the lake of fire. Meaning, I, Micah Strickland, deserve hell. I deserve hell, and I deserve it forever and ever and ever. Why? Because I have sinned against a holy God. I have sinned against a God that you don't trifle with. And yet I've dared to trifle with him. And I, have, I am deserving of hell forever. And hear this. The only reason why I won't end up in hell is because of Jesus Christ. Because he endured in himself the judgment that I deserve. Or let me say it this way. If I receive the crown of life, what I don't deserve, and I don't receive the 
lake of fire that I do deserve, there is only one reason why. And his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. He is the reason. By a marvelous and merciful exchange, he has died that I might live. He has suffered that I might go free. He has faced and felt the wrath of God so that I don't have to taste it. And understand this, brothers and sisters, there has been an exchange that has taken place where I gave Jesus my sin. And in place of my sin, Jesus gives me his righteousness. And I am forever righteous in him, which leads me and will lead you to endure forever. For, to make it to the end for him. Let me end this way. Approximately 60 years after John writes these words to the church at Smyrna, there would literally be a man who would not fear what he was about to suffer and who would be faithful unto death. He was the, the pastor at the church of Smyrna. His name was Polycarp. He was an 86-year-old bishop who was martyred, who was killed for his faith in 156 A.D., he was charged with atheism because he would not confess Caesar is Lord, but instead said, Jesus is Lord. Polycarp, his, his whole martyrdom is written down in what is called the martyrdom of Polycarp. It's the oldest account of death of a Christian outside of the Bible. And I want to just read a few words from this account because I think we need to hear this. What Jesus was saying about suffering and dying, he wasn't joking. In fact, it's, it's said that Polycarp was the 12th member of the church at Smyrna that was killed brutally for their faith. But just listen, when he, Polycarp, was brought before him, the proconsul, the proconsul asked him, are you Polycarp? When he confessed that he was, the proconsul tried to persuade him to recant, saying, have respect to your age. And other things that customarily follow this, such as swear by the fortune of Caesar, change your mind. The proconsul was insistent and said, take the oath and I shall release you. Curse Jesus. But Polycarp replied, for 86 years I have been his servant and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who has saved my soul? The proconsul said, I have wild beasts. I shall throw you to them if you do not change your mind. But Polycarp said, call them. For repentance from better to worse is not permitted for us. But it is noble to change from what is evil to what is good. And again, the proconsul said, I shall have you consumed with fire if you despise the wild beast unless you change your mind. But Polycarp said, the fire you threaten burns but an hour and is quenched after a little while. For you do not know the fire of the coming judgment and everlasting punishment that is laid up for the ungodly. But why do you delay? Come do what you will. As he spoke these and many other words, he was inspired with courage and joy and his face is said to have been filled with grace. So that not only did he not collapse under under fright at the things that were said about him, but to the point where the proconsul was astonished and sent his own herald in the midst of the arena of people waiting to see um, him die. And his own herald proclaimed three times, Polycarp, Polycarp has confessed himself to be a Christian. 
three different times. When this was said, the entire crowd shouted with uncontrollable anger and a great cry, burn Polycarp alive. It is said these next things then happened with such swiftness, quicker than words could tell. The crowd swiftly collecting wood and kindling. When the pyre was prepared, the materials were placed around him. And as they were about to nail him to the pyre, Polycarp said, Leave me as I am. For he who enables me to endure the fire will also enable me to remain on this pyre without moving even without the sense of security which you get from the nails. So they did not nail him, but they tied him instead. Then he prayed. And I wish I had time to read the prayer, but what a prayer. And when he had finished his prayer, the men in charge of the fire lit the fire. And as the mighty flame blazed up, the account says this, we saw a miracle. The fire completely surrounded the body of the martyr. And it was there in the middle, not like flesh burning, but like bread baking or like gold and silver being refined in a furnace. For we also perceived a very fragrant odor as if it were the scent of incense or some other precious spice going up to heaven. When the lawless men eventually realized his body could not be consumed by the fire, they ordered an executioner to stab him with a dagger. And when he did this, there came out such a large quantity of blood that it extinguished the fire. And don't miss these last words. And the whole crowd was amazed that there should be so great a difference between the death of an unbeliever and the death of the elect. Don't miss those words, brothers and sisters. There will always be a great difference between the death of the unbeliever and the death of one who knows Jesus. For when we know Jesus, all that death can do to us is make us open our eyes into the presence of Jesus. That's all it can do. We open our eyes into his presence. There's a vast difference between death as an unbeliever, opening your eyes to forever be punished apart from Christ, and death as a believer, opening your eyes to Jesus. Let me end this way. It has been said that The Greeks had a race in their Olympic games that was very unique. The winner was not the runner who finished first. Instead, it was the runner who finished with with his torch still lit. May we all in this room, by the grace of our God, may we run all the way with our flame still lit. May we run and may we finish the race, brothers and sisters, with our flame burning blazing for him. May we be, as the Apostle Paul, be able to say, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. To the believers at Smyrna, I believe it was said of them, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter in. Enter in. I pray today that we will live for that well done, good and faithful servant. If you can stand with me, We're going to call the musicians forward and entering into a time of invitation and consecration where, again, in song, we proclaim that we serve a Savior who is the one and the only, and He is the only way to God. If you have never turned from your sin and turned to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, if you have never, if you have never ceased to trust yourself, if you have never laid your sin down, Brothers and sisters, and according to the word of God, if you have not repented, you will likewise, all likewise, perish. 
Jesus said it. Luke 13, 3, look it up. If you don't repent, if you don't turn from your sin, you will perish. But if you do, if you do turn from your sin and turn to Jesus, you will have life forever. Oh, that that can be said of every person in this room. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we thank you for Jesus. Lord, remind us afresh and anew today that the Lord, if we were to get, if we were to all get what we deserved, we would all get hell. That is what we deserve. We deserve hell. One sin, one sin against you makes us guilty before a holy God. And in this room, God, we have committed thousands upon thousands of them. And we are deserving of death. Yet, Jesus, you have made a way for us to have life. And Jesus, you have made a way for us to endure to the end. Father, I pray for anyone in this room today who doesn't know you, that today would be the day of salvation. May today be the day that they turn from the eternal fire, the lake of fire, the second death, and they turn to you, Jesus. Instead of getting a second death, they get a second birth. They're born again in you. And I pray, God, I pray for the child of God in this room, all across this room. Well, there's some in here that have stopped running the race altogether. They're just here because they're supposed to be. Others, maybe you're in here, Lord, they're they're contemplating getting out of the race. Just putting the flame out and just walking away. But God, remind us today that you are worthy. That you are worthy, God. And that you will enable us by your spirit, through your power, to make it. Lord, by you, we will make it to the end. Help us, God, to cling to you like never before. So that whatever comes our way, Lord, we have chosen in advance. We choose you. Jesus is Lord. Just finish this time, God. In Jesus' name. Amen.